You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Well, good morning. How are we? If you are tuning in online, thank you for tuning in. Glad to have you here virtually. Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. If you're a guest with us or you haven't been around in some time, we have been over the last several weeks in a verse-by-verse study through the book of Titus that we've titled The Culture War. And thus far, if I had to summarize this sermon series or this book of the Bible, I would say that we have overwhelmingly been discussing the importance of godly conduct both in the church and in the home, the importance of living with godly conduct. In chapter 1, we talked about the, co- the, the conduct required of us in the church specifically for leadership, the qualifications of godly leadership, godly leaders that the Bible refers to as elders. We also talked about uh, what kind of conduct inevitably leads to division within the church and how the, the elders are to handle that division when it takes place. We're to recognize the red flags of divisiveness. We rebuke the divisive person strongly, and if they are unwilling to repent in order to prevent further damage from being done, they are to be removed. So chapter 1 highlights both positive conduct for elders to live by and negative conduct that's to be recognized in the church and uprooted if necessary. Chapter 2 really highlights the conduct in the home. Uh, We talked about the prescribed standards of older men and older women that they are to live by, the prescribed standards for younger women to live by, and the one simple prescribed standard that younger men are to hopefully, Lord willing, live by. Uh, Last week, we even discussed conduct for a type of household relationship that existed then that doesn't today in household slaves. We talked about how though we don't have slavery today, we do face many other forms of injustice in the world, and that even in the face of injustice, we are called to live our lives with godly conduct. So overwhelmingly, the emphasis thus far has been live above reproach. I mean, if I had to summarize it, that's what, that's what we're getting from this book so far, that regardless of where you are, whether it's in the church or it's in the home, regardless of your age, regardless of your gender, regardless of your social status, you are to, in all things, live above reproach. Live in such a way where those who oppose you have no ground to bring any kind of accusation against you because your conduct is Christ-like. So far, we've talked about what we do, what we do. This morning, we see Paul shift gears a little bit, and he moves away from talking about what we are to do and to begin talking about what God has done and is doing presently. And all of that work, the work of God, falls under a really important term that you need to add to your vocabulary if it is not already a part of your vocabulary as a Christian, and that is the word grace. Grace. It's a central theme of the passage that we're looking at this morning. It is a central theme, I dare say, of the Christian faith at large. Paul begins in verse 11 with these astonishing words. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. 
And there's almost some drama to that, isn't there? That should get your attention. The grace of God has appeared to us. It's honestly one of my favorite passages in the book of Titus. Paul almost personifies grace in four different ways. There are four faces of grace, if you will, four roles that grace plays in our lives as Christ followers that help us live out our faith, that help us be effective witnesses to the dying world around us, and that help us fix our eyes upon a future hope that we have in Christ's second coming. Now, with that said, grace is a word that is used a lot in Christian circles, and rightfully so, it should be. It's a word that I think most people assume when they use it that everyone else will understand what they mean when they use it, right? Uh, I remember when I first came to faith, uh, I heard a lot of people talking about grace, and I never really thought about it until someone asked me what it was, and then I thought, you know, I actually don't know. Uh, It's just one of those words that everyone sort of throws out there and no one ever really understands. And so I've discovered through the years it's really helpful to provide some clarity, even on the most elementary terms, so that we're all on the same page here. What is grace? That's a good question to ask before we jump into this. Grace in verse 11, and virtually everywhere else in the New Testament, it's the Greek word charis. Charis. It's a word that we typically define as an undeserved gift, a gift that you receive that you didn't deserve or earn. And who is, in the Christian context, the giver of good gifts? God. I mean, that's the most, like, even athletes and movie stars thank God, right? I mean, this is the easiest answer you could possibly give in church. God, yes. James 1.17, he says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. I love that passage. One of my favorites in the book of James. Grace is like the greatest gift that you could ever receive that you didn't earn, that you couldn't pay for, that you certainly didn't deserve, that was given to you purely out of the generosity of the giver. Just an amazing, so you could define it this way for our purposes this morning. Grace is the undeserved work of God in our lives. The undeserved work of God in our lives. The the, the work of God through the persons of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's the work that we don't deserve, but that God does out of His own goodness and kindness and generosity. There's this great story of a symposium that took place Uh, many, many decades ago now over comparative religions wherein um, several theologians and pastors were gathered together to talk about various different world religions and how they stack up to one another. And someone posed the question, what unique aspects, if any, does the Christian faith bring to the table with regard to world religions? And, and they began this discussion, and someone mentioned the incarnation, Jesus becoming a human, and, and that was quickly struck down because there are other religions where gods become men, and, and you know, it's certainly a different story, but, but more or less sounds the same to an outsider. Someone mentioned the resurrection, and again, the idea of someone you know, dying and coming back to life, not, not completely unique today. Uh, we believe it originated in the Christian gospel, but uh, certainly something that has been told in various other traditions for the last, I don't know, thousands of years. And then in walks, history tells us, a man named C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis. With a name like that, you're destined to be smart. And he says, what's all the fuss about? And they tell him, we're, we're talking about what, if any, unique characteristics does Christianity bring to the table? And for pausing for a moment, C.S. Lewis responds, well, that's easy. It's grace to which they discussed and agreed on. Christianity is the only religion, it's the only faith tradition that dares make the love 
that, re- that, that redeems, that brings out of darkness, cost God everything and cost us nothing. It is a radical message, scandalous even. In fact, that's some of the terminology that the New Testament uses. It's scandalous. Now, whether that story about comparative world religions is historically accurate or not, we, we really don't know. It's not provable that that actually happened. But we do have the very words of C.S. Lewis in what I think is his magnum opus. Many people talk about the screw tape letters. I think mere Christianity is probably more important work than screw tape. This is what C.S. Lewis said. He said, the Christian is in a different position from other people who are trying to be good. They hope by being good to please God if there is one, or if they think there is not, at least they hope to deserve approval from good men. But the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ life inside of him. He does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Just as the roof of a greenhouse does not attract the sun because it is bright, but becomes bright because the sun shines upon it. The man had a way with words, didn't he? The message of grace is the message, the singular message that sets us apart in the culture war. It is counterintuitive from anything else you can hear in the world, anything else that the world is listening to. It doesn't make any rational sense. It's a radical and scandalous message. And because of that, it is precisely the kind of message that the world needs to hear above all things. So this morning, as we unfold Titus 2, 11 through 15, we're going to look at four faces of grace. That's what I've titled the message this morning. Four aspects of the undeserved work of God in our lives. And we're going to see how each of them meet us in our need right where we are and equip us to impact the world around us regardless of our circumstances. We're going to start with the first face. We'll call this first one Grace the Savior. Grace the Savior. Read uh, all of verse 11. I read the first part of it. Let's read all of it. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared. It has been revealed in some way, and it comes along with it salvation. Uh, Grace is pictured here in sort of the role of the the Savior. It's personified uh, as the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, the saving work of Jesus is in and of itself an act of grace. Now, there's a lot jam-packed in here. And our, our, our task is going to be to determine at least two aspects of this first verse. We're going to answer two questions regarding verse 11. One, what does Paul mean that grace has appeared? And two, what is meant by all people, a salvation for all people? That's, a, that's a, an interesting phrase. We need to know what Paul means by that. So grace begins by bringing salvation, a salvation first that is visible. He literally says, the grace of God has appeared. The word appeared here, it's in the Greek uh, epiphino. It's a word that means a manifestation or an appearing of something or someone. It's the word from which we get our English word epiphany. Uh, It's rarely used in the New Testament. In fact, only four times total in the New Testament here and three other places. Titus 3, 4 is one of them. Next week, we'll talk about that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. We get it in uh, Acts 27.20. 20. 
uh, where there's actually a physical appearing taking place. Paul talks, he says, neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days. This is when he was at sea and apparently very overcast. They couldn't see the sun or the stars. So literally, uh, it has the idea of seeing something become seeable, become visible. Uh, and, and Luke 179, this is from Mary's Magnificat, which we studied in our Luke Life Bible Studies somewhere around 13 years ago, it feels like. Uh, that was, I think, 20 weeks or so, maybe, all the way back in chapter 1. Uh, if you're not in a Life Bible Study, by the way, you need to get in one. They will bless you. Um, I feel a little bit self-serving saying that, but... Uh, because uh, it is the ministry that I oversee, but I, I, what better place to be than in a room full of other people who want to learn the Word of God? It's great. We're in Luke's gospel. It says in verse 79 of chapter 1 of Luke, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. So Luke uses epiphino here not to mean appear, but to shine. There's an aspect of light of something being revealed because it was in darkness and now light has shone upon it and it is now visible. It's reminiscent of the words of Jesus, isn't it? In John 8, verse 12, when he says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Scriptures tell us that the world, broken by sin, was full of darkness, that none could make their way back to God, that, that things were utterly broken, that they were utterly destroyed because of sin. But in Christ was the life, and the life was the light of men. That's John 1.4. He goes on in verse 5. He says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, God's grace, the undeserved work of God, is freely lavished upon us. It, it brings into the world a visible salvation through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Not just His birth, but His life and His death and His burial and His resurrection as well. Because grace, the work of God, salvation appears to us. It was tangible. It was tangible. It was seeable. It was visible. Uh, again, this is how the Apostle John begins his first letter, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He starts the whole thing by saying this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life, what? Appeared. We have seen it and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. You have to understand, this is so important for you to get, that our salvation in Christ is anchored in a in a moment, in an event in human history, right? It's not just a legend. The, the Bible, our, our faith, it's not, it's not myth. It's not an ancient bedtime story. Real men saw God's grace appear. It became tangible. It became touchable. They heard it with their ears. They saw it with their eyes. They were there. They were with him. They were present with Jesus. And they were willing to die because they were convinced that what happened to him, is, it was real. It was true that his resurrection actually happened and that his resurrection guaranteed salvation and eternal life for those who believe. They were convinced of this because they visibly saw it. It was tangible. The gospel, hear me when I say this, it's not just my truth, right? That is stupidity. No one would go around and be like, yeah, well, I mean, World War II is my truth. You know, it may not be yours, you know. Like, it happened. It's in 
history. It was a, it's anchored in history. It's visible. It's tangible. Beyond that, it's a salvation that is accessible. Now, there are only uh, really a couple of things that Paul can mean by salvation for all men. That's what he says here. There's really only one of two options. He's either talking about a universal application of salvation or universal access to salvation. Uh, We would outright reject this first one, universal application of salvation. That would mean that salvation will come to all people and that all people will be saved. This is universalism. Uh, We don't even have to deny it. Jesus himself denies it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, Jesus said, and many are those who find it. That does not sound like a universal application of salvation. When he talks about hell and weeping and gnashing of teeth, who are, the, who, who are they that are there if, if there is an, a universal application of salvation? There's, there's no room for universalism in uh, Old or New Testament theology. It can only mean, then, a universal access. So what I mean by this is that when you look back to the Old Testament, you find that God only deals in covenants with His people, which are Israel. That There's only one people group that God is really interested in. The people group of the Israelites, beginning with Abraham, becoming Israel in Jacob, and then being established through the law, commandments, and ordinances of Moses. Now, we get to the New Testament. That is no longer true. All people groups are welcomed into the family of God. And interestingly enough, here in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, the word people, is, it's actually in the plural. So it could, be, it could be more correctly translated as a salvation for all peoples, for all people groups, in other words. In other words, you don't have to be a, an Israelite anymore to enjoy the covenant of God through Christ. You no longer, men, need to be circumcised. Praise God. What did Paul say in Ephesians 2, 14 and 15? For he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might, this is important, create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles here, and he is saying this dividing wall of hostility that stands between the two, which was real. They were told as Jewish people, don't even let the dust of your feet from Gentiles carry with you. Shake it off right? There is no room to be with impure and unclean people. And what this passage is saying is that dividing wall is knocked down and that Christ has taken both the Jew and the Gentile and in himself formed one man. He says it very clearly in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. doesn't matter How old you are, it doesn't matter your gender, it doesn't matter your nationality, it doesn't matter whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, because if you place your faith and trust in the personal work, the saving work of Jesus Christ, you become a Christian and not whatever you were before that. Now, why would this message be needed for Titus? Why is Paul reminding Titus of this reality? Remember the context. Go back to to week one. We talked about who is Titus briefly. Titus was a Greek Christian. In other words, he was a recipient of the universal access to salvation. He was not Jewish, and yet he had access 
because salvation is for all peoples now. And where was he going? He was going to Crete, which was a large Greek island. Titus needed to be reminded that the undeserved work of God brought salvation to all peoples so that he might proclaim that message to all of those peoples. And it is a good reminder for us as well, is it not? You are, this might surprise you, you are going to meet people in your life who are very different than you. I know, shocking, very shocking. You are going to meet people, perhaps uh, work with people, perhaps marry into family of people who could not actually be more different than you, who will have very, very different ideas about what should be socially normative in the world, what is morally or ethically okay. And you will be either uh, in a healthy or very unhealthy manner criticized for your beliefs if you maintain a biblical worldview. And remember, what did we talk about last week? What do we prioritize above everything else? The gospel. Why? Why do we do that? Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all peoples, even those who are most adamantly opposed to you. So don't fight on their level. When they begin to attack you, when they begin to criticize you, when they reject you, when they whatever, because you maintain a biblical ideology towards the world, do not fight them on their level. Do not use their tactics. Use, fight with the gospel of grace. It's the strongest weapon you can actually use. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You see, the message of grace can destroy any stronghold that it faces. There is nothing that can stand against the power of God in the gospel. So fight with the message of grace. Fight with the gospel. Don't be ashamed of it. It's God's power to transform a human heart. Verse 11, the undeserved work of God in our lives is pictured as grace the Savior. And then we get to verse 12. This is our next one. We find grace the sculptor. Read verse 12 with me. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You could think of grace here as the undeserved work of God in shaping us into the image of His Son, Jesus. This is another function of the grace of God. So get this, in verse 11, grace is serving as a means to salvation. In verse 12, grace is serving as a means to what we would call sanctification, the big theological term that simply means God's process of conforming us into the image of Christ. In other words, you could say it this way, it is by God's grace that we come to faith in Christ, and it is by God's grace that we grow up in that faith in Christ. God saves us, and then He begins this long and painful process of conforming us into the image of Jesus. As He sculpts us, He smooths over the rough places in our lives, and He begins to define new shapes, new characteristics that are more Christ-like. That's what Paul's describing here. So let's talk about that. The sculptor has two main tasks, right? To smooth over the rough edges of the clay, and then once that's done, to begin to actually craft the image that he's trying to sculpt. So we'll talk about both of those aspects here for a moment. First, uh, the, the process of smoothing the rough edges. Specifically, Paul says he trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly 
our passions. Did you know that when you came to faith in Christ, that you put your old life to death? That God's grace teaches us, after that old life has been put to death, to not return to that dead body anymore as well, because that's our tendency. We die, and then we come to faith in Christ, and we regularly go back to the old corpse because we're so infatuated with it, how we used to be, the things we used to do that would bring us comfort and make us happy. And God's grace is pictured here as teaching us how to renounce that, how to walk away, to refuse that. It's the Greek term orneomai, so it's a word that means a refusal to accept the terms, a refusal to accept the terms. We see this word again in Hebrews 11.24. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses refused his heritage as an Egyptian because he understood that his actual heritage was that he was an Israelite and that he was saved by the midwives and then captured by Pharaoh's daughter and raised as an Egyptian. He was, he was under the impression that this was his identity, and then when it was revealed to him that this is his actual identity, he refused the old identity. And, and the idea here in, in Titus 2.12 is that God's grace in our lives, it trains us to refuse the old life, the old identity, because we understand that we've now become children of God and new creations. That's the, the, the idea behind the saving power of the gospel, that you don't just turn your life around, that you don't get a second chance, that you don't turn over a new leaf. This isn't you 2.0 or whatever. You become a new person in Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, not a better version, a new one. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know, if, if it wasn't so macabre, I would say that like when you come to faith, it'd be really cool to hold like a, a, a funeral for your old self. Don't do that. People will think you're in a cult. But, but I'm just saying like it, it imagines, I think, something that is important, uh, an important reality, that the old you is dead. See, part of, part of the grace of God in our life is to cull away those, those, those aspects of the old man or woman to chip away those rough edges, to teach you how to renounce it, how to refuse that old identity. Grace includes this smoothing out the rough edges, but also in defining this new Christ-like shape. We not only renounce the old way of life, but we also begin to live a new kind of life. Paul says to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So let's walk through these three terms here for a moment, one by one. If you've been paying attention over the last several weeks, this first characteristic should stand out to you because we have talked about it already a lot. Self-control. This is now, if you've been keeping track, the fifth time we've seen this word in two chapters. So it's an important word. This is one of the benefits of studying verse by verse through a book of the Bible, is that you begin to pick up on uh, patterns. You begin to pick up on things that are emphasized that you would otherwise maybe not grab if you were just bouncing around in different books of the Bible. Uh, we've seen this five times now in Titus. It was one of the qualifications for elders in Titus 1.8. It was a qualification for older men in Titus 2.2. Uh, it was one of the standards for younger women in Titus 2.5. So apparently older women, you're off the hook for self-control. Live like there's no tomorrow. I'm kidding. That was a joke. Don't do that. Uh, and it was the only standard given to younger men 
uh, in Titus 2.6. And now we see it here as a part of the work of God in our lives, to live self-controlled. So this should not come as a shock to us, that the grace of God is operative in developing self-control in your life. It's literally a part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23. When you come to faith and you receive the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit begins to bear fruit in your life, supernaturally, that you are not capable of bearing on your own apart from the work of God. And the last one in this list is self-control. So let me give you a truth. It might be a little uncomfortable for us. That's okay. That's one of the functions of Scripture. If you don't live with self-control, you are at best not living by the Spirit and at worst not saved. Think on that for a minute. If you do not live with self-control, you are at best not living by the Spirit and at worst you don't have the Spirit. Now, you're not going to do this perfectly, right? You, you do need a Savior, contrary to what you might think sometimes. Uh, you will not get this right every time. But if your life is totally void of self-control in every way, if, there is, if, if by inspecting your life and the decisions that you make, the way that you carry yourself, there is no evidence of self-control whatsoever, that is a huge red flag because it's a work of the Spirit of God and it's a result of the grace of God in our lives as He refines us into the image of Jesus. It's a supernatural act of God in our lives. When there's no self-control, there's a problem there. It needs to be addressed, examined, thought about, prayed through. Number two, he says that we are to live upright. Upright. Uh, kind of a strange way of talking. I don't think anyone, you've probably not said the word upright unless you meant like a recliner. Uh, maybe in your whole life. I, I don't know. Um, it's a word that, that actually is right in line with what we talked about last week with regard to justice. It means to live an upright life means to live justly. It's the same word, actually. To so this is interesting. Uh, in, in evangelicalism, I heard uh, a professor of mine say this one time, uh, Dr. Yarnell, that, that Christians are very interested in living a just life and very uh, cautious of the idea of justice. And they're actually the same word in Greek. Dikaios, dikaiosune. I mean, they're, they're just depending on if it's adverbial or verbal or uh, sometimes it's used as a noun as well, justice in general. They're, they're the same word. It's the same thing. In this passage, it's adverbial. It means to live justice-orientedly, to live with justice in mind. In other words, uh, part of the work of God in your life, understand this, is teaching you how not only to recognize the difference between right and wrong, but how not to shy away from calling it out when you see it. There's this extremely annoying, if I'm just being honest, and unbiblical tendency today in Christians to not want to call sin for what it is, as if you're going to offend people. Now, that's not a license to just be an offensive person. Don't do that. But the gospel of God is offensive. The Bible literally says that. It is offensive to those who do not want to hear it. Let me just be honest with you. People are not born again for lack of offense. Think on that. You are not born again for lack of offense. You are born again by hearing and believing the gospel. You are, you are born again by believing the good news which requires acknowledging the bad news that it addresses. The fact that you have a sin nature, that you are broken, that you do things wrong, that you have wrong ideas about the world and are in need of correction. 
You come to faith by, in part, understanding that there is a clear difference between right and wrong, evil and good. Maybe it is offensive. It's also necessary. Listen, you, you cannot live an upright life and not stand for anything. You can't do it. That, that's literally what it means. To live uprightly, to live justly, it means to stand for things that are good and stand opposed to things that are evil. We stand for the Word of God. We stand for truth. Don't be like those people that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Don't be like them. God's grace teaches us how to recognize when something is wrong and to call it for what it is, to unashamedly say, that is wrong. That is sin. It should always be addressed. Third, he says that we are to live godly lives. More accurately, a a life of piety. You could think of it that way. It means living with humble respect towards the things of God. Your your life should be oriented towards the ways of God. Your values should reflect the values of God. Remember back in in week one, we talked about uh, what makes us different as Christians. And one of the things that I said is that our personal values are defined by our group identity as the elect of God and not the other way around. So in other words, when you came to faith, you came to faith with a set of ideas in your mind about how the world should should operate, about what is right and what is wrong. You had a value system in your life. Whether you are aware of it or not, you do. Everyone has an operating value system. And, and, And one of the things that makes us different is that when you come to faith, you don't try and impose those values onto the church, but rather you allow the values of God as revealed in Scripture to become your values in place of those old ones. Part of putting to death the old person is, parting, or is putting to death the old value system and allowing God's values to shape who you are. And so uh, to live a godly life then means literally that the grace of God is exchanging our old ways of thinking with how God values the things in this world. Grace trains us in so many ways. It sculpts us. It's one of the faces of grace. One of the faces is that of a Savior. It brings salvation into human history through the person and work of Jesus. But one of the faces of grace is a sculptor that not only smooths over these rough edges in our lives and trains us how to renounce the old identity, but also forms new Christ-like qualities in this current and present age. God's grace gives us the ability to live with self-control, to stand for justice, to live with reverence towards the things that matter to God. And then we get to the third face. The grace, the sustainer. That's what we'll call this one. Read verse 13. It says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pay attention there uh, to that word waiting for a moment. Whenever I hear that word waiting, I admittedly, uh, embarrassingly, think of a waiting room at a restaurant. I'm going to be honest. I love food. I love a little bit of a foodie. And uh, it it seems like maybe a a silly illustration, but I think it really does capture the heart of of what is happening here. You know, if if you've ever uh, been told of a new restaurant, maybe you read the reviews, you look at the menu, you're hungry, you get there, you're excited to try it, and then it's like a 45-minute wait, right? And and it's, you have to sit there and wait around, and it's it's terrible. And, but but here's, here's the deal. The term waiting in verse 13, it doesn't mean idly passing time. That's, that's not the idea captured here. It's, it's a word that means something more like waiting with expectancy. Waiting with expectancy. In other words, when you get to a restaurant and you're in the, the waiting area, it might feel 
because you're hungry, like you're never going to be sat, but you certainly have an expectation that you eventually will be, right? No one goes to a restaurant and puts your name on a list not fully expecting to eventually be sat down. You wouldn't just wait there for six hours and be like, well, I guess it's not happening. (laughs) We'll try again tomorrow. You wait with the full belief that you're eventually going to have a table. That's the idea here in verse 13, that the grace of God trains us to wait for this blessed hope and not with wishful thinking, but with expectancy that the Lord will eventually come again. This is such an important concept for you to grasp for the Christian life, and especially in the context of the culture war. Uh, I've already mentioned it once today, several times last week. The world is broken. It's unfair. It will disappoint you. It will take advantage of you. It will hurt you if possible. It will chew you up, and it will spit you out if you allow it to. And beyond that, if you stand for truth, if you live uprightly like we just talked about, and you advocate for biblical values, people will revile you. They will reject you. They will hate what you believe and what you stand for. The Christian perspective is not a welcome one in this world. And so what that means then is that living, this is the great paradox of our faith, living out your faith is not easy if it's done well. Have you ever thought about that? The the worse you do at living out your faith, the easier it is. The better you are, the more obedient you are to the commands of Scripture, the more uprightly you live, the more difficult it becomes for you in this world because the world is opposed to the message of Scripture. It is opposed. They crucified Jesus, and Jesus said, they hate me. How much more are they going to hate you? It is not a walk in a park. It exacts a toll on you. People will despise you. They will revile you. They will, heaven forbid, unfriend you on social media. But Jesus said, narrow is the way, and few are those who find it. It's difficult. It's challenging. So understand this. We need the sustaining power of God by His grace in our life. We need a firm and expectant hope that one day the Lord will return to us to bring peace to the conflict that we face. We need to know that this is not all for nothing, that eventually there's going to be some reprieve from the pain that we are enduring. I love to probably two to four, sometimes five days a week work out. I know it doesn't look like it because I love food more, but I, I do love training. and I, I love timed training. I love circuit training where you set a specific amount of time and you go with high intensity the whole entire time knowing that, man, when the time runs out, I'll get a break. I'll be able to rest. It's amazing. Uh, you do this sometimes on uh, uh, circuit weightlifting. I do it sometimes on the Stairmaster, uh, which is just a modern-day torture advice, by the way. And... Um, I will sometimes I will set a timer on the stairmaster and then I will put my towel over the screen so I can't see the time. It's a little mental game I play with myself, but, but I just I know that I'm going to keep looking at it and like every uh, 25 minutes it's actually only really been like two minutes and it's going to seem like an eternity that I'm there. And so it's a mind game. I realize that, but I do it anyway. And there are times when maybe like I'm not a hundred percent right. I'm just feeling starting to struggle mentally, not there, not in it. And, and, and I'll begin to wonder, like, man, I wonder how much time is left on this workout. You know, I have my music playing or whatever, try to, try to not think about it, but that question starts tumbling around in my mind. And every now and again, I break, and I take the towel off, and, and usually there's only like a few minutes left, and I feel stupid, and I'm like, come on, man, put the towel back. But here's the deal. I thought about this this week. No matter how bad I'm struggling in the middle of a workout, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how badly I want it to stop, There is never a moment in any part of that workout where I begin to think, I hope I'm not stuck in this workout for the rest of my life. 
What if I never get off the Stairmaster again? I'll never see my children. I'll, I'll never be home again. This is, this is my eternity. This is where I'm at on the Stairmaster forever. Like I'm actively aware that even though I'm struggling, even though it, it sucks and I, I want the pain to stop, I know for sure it's not going to last forever. The timer is eventually going to end. It will eventually stop. I'll eventually get off. That's the idea here. That's, that's what Paul is getting at here, that, that it may not seem like it in moments of your life, but eventually the timer is going to run out. The trumpet's going to sound. The glorious appearing of Jesus will take place. It's going to happen. The grace of God appeared when Christ came to bring salvation. The grace of God is active in our lives as he is sculpting us into the image of Christ, and the grace of God will appear in the future as well in this second coming. Our God and Savior, Paul says, will come. He will return. He is trustworthy. By the way, if you've ever doubted whether or not Jesus is God, Paul just called Jesus God here. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Doesn't get more clear than that. Jesus will come. The timer will end. So as you struggle through this life, understand that the, the work, the undeserved work of God in your life, the grace of God sustains you along the way. It sustains you through your pain. It sustains you through the things that you are wrestling with. Grace has many faces, doesn't it? We see grace the Savior who brings a salvation this moment in human time in our past. We see Grace the Sculptor who is at work in our lives presently shaping us into the image of Christ. We see Grace the Sustainer who gives us what is, what is necessary to make it through the, the trials or, or whatever difficulty you face in this life. And last, we'll end here with Grace the Substitute. Read verse 14. It says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works, who gave himself for us to redeem us. Perhaps the greatest act of grace in, in all of creation is that Jesus became our substitute that we might have life. We talked about the gospel last week at length. I will reaffirm it again because it's never something we can talk too much about. The message of the gospel is that we are all guilty of sin, that we stand condemned before God, that we are totally unable to pay the debt that we owe. Imagine that you are in a courtroom, that the verdict has been rendered. You are guilty of all charges. The punishment has been handed down. Death execution is coming your way, and as you are being walked out of that courtroom, the judge's son comes in and says, Father, uncuff him and put the cuffs on me. I will pay the penalty, and in exchange, give him all the rights and benefits that I have as your son. That is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he made him, talking about Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's an exchange that takes place. Jesus becomes our substitute. He stands in our place and receives the full wrath of God, the condemnation for sin in our place that we might have the full benefits that he has living perfect sinless life. He didn't just pay the debt that we couldn't afford. He didn't have a big bank account that he just, oh, I'll, I'll handle it. He takes upon himself the condemnation. He becomes our substitute as an act of the grace of God because we don't deserve it a single bit. And he does it anyway. Yes, that's worth applauding. 
When you understand the depth of, of just how broken you really are, you understand the beauty of the gospel all the more. It, 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 it's, a, it's a part of the growth process. The gospel becomes more beautiful the more you realize how actually opposite of beautiful you really are in light of the life you've lived. Grace is amazing, isn't it? The undeserved work of God in our lives does so many things for us, not because we've earned it, not because we've, we've come to church a lot and had good attendance or read our Bibles or memorize Scripture or pray a whole lot or, or whatever, but because of the kindness and generosity and grace of God. We are broken by sin and in need of a Savior, and grace appeared to us, bringing us a salvation. We're called to live godly lives, and grace sculpts us into His image by smoothing out the rough spots and defining new Christ-like characteristics. And when life gets difficult, grace sustains us through those seasons, and we can stand confident before God and the world around us because grace has provided a substitute in Christ to take our condemnation and in exchange receive fellowship with the Father. People need to hear this. People need to hear this message of grace. I have an assignment for you. I don't ever do this, but I'm giving you homework. I want you, in a moment, we're going to pray, and, and I want you to ask that the Holy Spirit of God would put on your heart the name of one person that needs to hear the message of grace. The, the world needs this message of grace tremendously. They don't need to hear over and over again to do better, do better, do better. You're not doing good enough. Do better. That is law. That kills. No one will ever do good enough. They don't need to hear how they're making the wrong choices all the time, and would you just make better choices, or, or you're voting for the wrong person, or you're doing this, or you're doing that. They need to hear that you're broken, that you are unlovable like me. But God, being rich in mercy, loves us anyways and sends His Son to die on our behalf. That's what they need to hear. That's what changes people. That is what wins the culture war, the grace of God. So my assignment for you is that as the Holy Spirit reveals to you a person that you need to share this with, that you would do that through a text message, a phone call, invite them over, have them listen to this sermon if that's what it takes. If you don't feel qualified, like, I don't know that I can say all that. Just send them the message. Sit down with them and listen to it with them and share with them about how God has redeemed you out of your brokenness, out of your sinfulness, that you didn't think you could be loved, and yet God loved you and has taught you your value and your identity, not because of anything that you've done, but because of the identity you receive as a Christian. And then I want you to invite them to church next Sunday. We've got inviter cards spread out on some of these uh, chairs. If you work with someone, if someone's in your life, give them the card, invite them to church. Step out of your comfort zone. We're talking about living uprightly and calling sin for what it is. This is just simply inviting. This is just like a, a starting place. Just invite someone to church. I'll do the bad. I'll give the bad news. And get them here. And make grace known to them. Because it's the only hope that we have. It's the only rest that we find in this lifetime. And it's a guarantee for a future lifetime to come. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you for grace. The amazing grace of God to save a wretch like me as we sing. And how appropriate. Thank you that 
that you made a way for us to know you, to have salvation, but beyond that, that you continue to work on our lives. You continue to mature us through the sanctifying process. You sustain us through difficulty, and you've acted as a substitute on our behalf. We're, we're grateful for that. Give us the boldness. Train us, equip us with boldness to share this message to those around us who most desperately need it. And not be worried about the results. There's nothing that we can do to, to convince anyone or, or change anyone. We, we, we leave that job to you that is rightfully yours. Would you just equip us to be obedient with our part, which is to share, to proclaim, to make known this message of grace. How we love you, how we thank you, and we are expectant, God, of your return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so, next week, I, I, I'm serious. I would love to see uh, guests, people here. We're moving into chapter three. We have two weeks of this left. Isn't that amazing? We've, we've uh, almost made it through this entire series already. Uh, we talked about the church in chapter one, the home in chapter two. Finally, in chapter three, we get to what is expected of us in the world, in the workplace, in the public square. What does God call us? How does God call us to live? We'll be talking about that next Sunday. We'll see you then.